Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barco, the host of New Books in Law. Today we will be discussing Historic Preservation Law in a Nutshell by Sarah C. Bronin and Ryan Roberry. Bronin is Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut School of Law, and Roberry is Assistant Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Siobhan. Could you begin the interview by briefly introducing yourselves? I'd love to know your backgrounds and how you became attracted to studying historic preservation law. Sure. So um, I'm Sarah Bronin, as you said. I'm a professor at UConn. I run our Center for Energy and Environmental Law. And I actually uh, trained as an undergraduate as an architect. I have an architectural license. And so came to the field of preservation law with that interest, with just a, an interest in buildings and, um, and how they work and how they contribute to the urban environment. I went to law school after that, um, but just before uh, law school, I had interned with the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, in graduate school, I did my thesis on Washington, D.C.'s historic districts uh, in a history program. So uh, coming at historic preservation from a variety of different ways eventually led me to, to see historic preservation law as a really exciting and possibly understudied uh, area of law, which brings all of these areas together. And hi, I'm uh, Ryan Roberry. I'm an assistant professor of law at the Georgia State University College of Law. I also co-direct our Center for the Comparative Study of Metropolitan Growth. Um, I My background is a little bit different than Sarah's. I came to historic preservation through history. Uh, I was a medieval historian at Oxford University in England. And in studying sort of places and peoples, I realized more and more how important uh, the tangible elements were, the buildings, the street layouts, uh, things like that, and how much one can glean from those structures. And so as I entered law school late at age 30, um, I was focused more on combining my love for history and law and, and ended up uh, finding this wonderful field of historic preservation law. Okay. Um, and how did you come to write your current work together? Well, uh, Ryan and I had met uh, previously, and we had talked both about our shared interests, particularly in history um, and, of course, the built environment. And we um, decided to write this after um, uh, I had published a book with another co-author called Historic Preservation Law, which was a case book that was intended to be used in the classroom. Uh, Ryan and I thought that a good follow-on to that book would be a book that could really be a handy reference guide for lawyers and practitioners uh, who were not necessarily lawyers, including architects and others in the preservation field. So that's what this book is intended to be. It's intended to be a book that can be used beyond the law classroom and, in fact, even beyond the field uh, of, of just lawyers specifically to be a reference for all areas of preservation law, ranging from the local uh, to the international. So what is historic preservation? Uh, historic preservation, I mean, at its own at its most basic level is uh, 
to protect significant historic resources from destruction, in, inappropriate alteration and neglect. And when I talk about historic resources, what I mean there is, I mean, it could be buildings, it could be archaeological sites, it could be Native American remains. I mean, the types of historic resources are vast and varied, but typically the, the key theme behind all of them is, is some element of human activity in the past. And the point of historic preservation is to preserve uh, these historic resources for future generations for a, for a host of reasons. I mean, some which are political, some which are, have to deal with aesthetics, some with education, and many having to deal with just our shared past and the things that, the strands that weave our culture together and uh, keeping those alive for, for people in the future. Why do you consider preservation law to be an emerging field? Uh, we consider it to be an emerging field because uh, preservation law only began to fully develop in the U.S. in the last 50 years. Um, we outlined sort of two key transition points uh, in our book, the first being in 1966, the National Historic Preservation Act was passed, which gives a federal framework uh, for preservation law and for thinking about how and why uh, we should preserve historic resources. Um, also important, in 1978, the United States Supreme Court passed the uh, Penn Central decision, uh, which upheld a landmarks law against a constitutional challenge in New York City and con consequently encouraged other localities to adopt similar ordinances. So in that way, one could say in, in some ways Penn Central paved the way for other localities to look at how they might use ordinances, their local ordinances, uh, to preserve their tangible built environments. And so it's really, I mean, 1966 is, is not even 50 years ago. Uh, it's, it's, it's slowly emerging and as sort of culture and what counts as a historic resource as those continue to sort of be constantly defined and as localities begin to use and try to understand how and what they should preserve. That's why we say it's emerging because it's still something that is is somewhat like, I guess, the nascent environmental movement. Now nobody would question we have an environmental movement, but it wasn't always so at the beginning. And we see um, historic preservation law as really coming into its own, as sort of a new generation of people. And, uh, and as it moves towards the future, it will indelibly change. What are some areas of current controversy that your book highlights? Well, just to pick up on some of the themes that Ryan just talked about, there are so many, um, so many new areas of tension that are presented when you have, uh, regulatory regimes that are trying to preserve historic properties at the same time as you have people who may want to do things to those historic properties that might compromise their historic integrity or their historic significance. So a couple of areas that our book covers include, um, Things like the Americans with Disabilities Act. So that, of course, is the federal statute passed uh, just a couple decades ago, which requires certain public facilities and others to update their buildings so that they can be accessible to the mobility impaired, to the sight impaired, and to, to others who are disabled. The conflict with uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act and preservation comes about when uh, changes must be made to a historic structure that might compromise the historic integrity of the structure. So, for example, um, ramps may be required to be built on the outside of a building uh, so that, that uh, mo the mobility impaired can access, let's say, the main entrance of that particular historic building. But a ramp would 
would potentially be a visual clash with uh, the historic elements of the building. So how do you still satisfy the goals that have been set out in other federal statutes on the preservation front, but also accommodate the very important goals of the Americans with Disabilities Act? That's an area that's been subject to a few lawsuits uh, in, in the recent past, and I think um, will continue to, to pose some conflicts where you don't have creative architects that can solve these problems from a design perspective. Uh, another area that we've looked at, um, so we've looked at a range of areas that, that involve cultural resources. So Ryan did a great uh, part of the, a chapter on the Abandoned Shipwrecks Act is one example. Um, there's issues that deal with Native American resources and the federal statutes that protect those, um, as well as just archaeological resources that don't have a tribal connection. Those areas are 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 uh, are in conflict now, and I think again, even though we're dealing with historic artifacts, they will they will be an increasingly important uh, area of law um, as as more building projects, uh, more large scale highways, you know, large projects. Uh, even for example, in Manhattan, you see some of these issues come up as uh, we we dig more into the urban environment and uh, and dig up uh, some of the relics of our past. And then just a third example um, is renewable energy. So at both at the local level and at the, at, at the level of federal projects, um, you see conflicts in renewable energy in the law. And our book covers those, uh, at, again, at the local level where let's say you have a single homeowner who wants to put up a solar collector on his or her roof and uh, they run up against local historic ordinances uh, or on the, on the larger scale where you have utilities who are trying to install let's say, a wind farm on federal land, and that will trigger a host of federal statutes that might come into play to 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 limit what they can do or to at least require a heightened level of scrutiny before that project is allowed to proceed. We've seen a lot of lawsuits in the renewable energy context uh, as it relates to historic preservation, and I think you'll continue to see those. So those are just a few of the issues that our book um, our book highlights uh, as as current areas of controversy. How do the most enduring historic preservation laws manage to achieve its protective aims while balancing a range of other values? And and so, you know, some of the most enduring historic preservation laws, well, well this, this could mean, um, you know, either the laws at the local level. So you, you have uh, a couple thousand jurisdictions across the country that have local historic preservation ordinances. And each of these is slightly different. So um, the historic preservation ordinance in Dallas, Texas, is different than it, uh, the preservation ordinances uh, which we have here in Hartford, Connecticut. So um, every locality will set forth their values within their particular ordinance. Um, so those values might include, um, uh, the, of course, the value of the buildings itself, but but they might be balanced against, let's say, hardship on the property owner. This is a concept that you see in local land use law in general, which is that in situations where there's a particular hardship on a property owner, they might not have to comply with the full extent of the regulation. In historic preservation, you see that as well. You see uh, it in Hartford. I'll give you the example of Hartford. If the measure that would be most appropriate in the historic district would be too costly, and there's a percentage that's laid out in our local ordinance, would be too costly for the property owner, would raise the cost of the project by more than a certain percent, 
then the property owner can comply with a lesser standard. And the reason that we have that here in Hartford is that Hartford is a very low-income uh, city. Uh, it just so happens, uh, you know, to be to be that way. And so what we're trying to do in our local preservation ordinance is respond to those conditions by allowing a little bit of flexibility for those property owners who might not be able to uh, comply fully with the historic preservation ordinance due to the cost. And so you see that balancing here in Hartford at the local level. Uh, you also see the balancing at, uh, at, at, in the, in the, uh, federal statutes as well. Um, we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, but, but many of the federal statutes have procedural requirements, uh, instead of, uh, instead of substantive requirements. So they merely require that, let's say, a federal agency stop, look, and listen before they proceed, uh, with a project that might affect historic resources. And the reason for that, uh, in the federal uh, context is to balance the need to uh, rec- uh, to recognize, to document, to protect uh, to the extent possible historic sites against the need for the federal government to actually engage in and complete projects. So there's a there's weighing that is inherent in at every level of historic preservation law, and I can think of very few situations where historic preservation law is the absolute value. And, and those situations are fairly unique. So for example, in, in the case of national historic landmarks, you know, they get heightened protection. In some states, we give heightened protection, um, uh, to, to certain protected designated properties. Um, but that's not, that's not common that, that, that preservation is trumps everything else. There's always a balancing. And as, as Sarah pointed out, I think one of the important pieces about this balancing act that that happens is sort of the built-in procedural consultation requirements, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. But this this ability to gather sort of different stakeholders around the table and to consult uh, is really at the heart of historic preservation law because we, you know, historic preservation law understands that there are people, you know, value things for different reasons, and there has to be some compromise struck. Uh, but that's that the consultation piece is is critical. Could you talk about the origins of the historic preservation movement? Uh, people have always been interested in the past. I actually just read a fascinating uh, account of a medieval monk who, uh, well, he wasn't always a monk. He was a soldier in William the Conqueror's army that went across uh, the English Channel and was so, as they moved towards the north and were, you know, thrashing the north, the northern parts of being in Yorkshire, etc., he came upon the ruined abbey of, at Whitby and was so moved by its natural beauty, no one was living there anymore, that he decided to become a monk to repent of his sins and things like that. Um, and so in some ways, historic preservation has always been with us. From the United States perspective, there's there's really been three large movements we outline in the book um, that have impacted historic preservation law. The first of those is collecting archaeological and tribal resources. And this was really during the early part of the country as contact was made with the Native American residents. Of course, there were questions and wondering who these people are and how did these mounds get built and um, these, these cities. And so there was a keen interest in sort of you no know, antiquarianism and gathering archaeological artifacts. I and mean, Thomas Jefferson is well known as being very, very interested uh, in ancient things and, and ancient peoples and had collected a lot of artifacts. Um, and the Smithsonian also was, was created to sort of manage some of these, these federal artifacts that, 
that were being collected by people over time. So really the first ma major movement in the United States was this idea of collecting archaeological and tribal resources. Uh, in about the 1880s, 1890s, as the U.S. began to move farther west, um, people began to realize just how vast this land actually was and how varied in landscape. The second movement was protecting some of these natural landscapes. Um, people began to realize there are more and more beautiful types of landscapes that could be, you know, could be destroyed and that they deserve protection. You have writings, of course, the transcendentalists. You have the beginnings of the National Park Service in the, in the late 19th century as a way of protecting sort of natural beauty and trying to appreciate it and keep it, keep it preserved. You have John Muir, you have Teddy Roosevelt, um, the U.S. Forest Service and sort of Yosemite and Yellowstone National Park and this idea that natural landscapes and vistas does also deserve protection. And that was the second movement. And then the more recent movement, um, is this movement to preserve buildings, structures, and other sites. And I say more recent, although this was happening all along. I mean, there was a movement early on in the 19th century to preserve, you know, George Washington's uh, plantation in Virginia. Um, but they were largely movements by individual peoples and groups who thought a particular building was important. But really, in the 20th century, there has been a renewed understanding of building structures and other sites that are important to urban areas, important for a range of reasons, and this desire to preserve sort of tangible built landscapes. And so all three of those sort of themes run throughout the book, uh, and those really are the origins. And there's no one, no one of those three takes dominance over the others, I would say, today. Uh, they're all involved, uh, but those origins... Uh, Started, started out in the early, early parts of the century. And I would imagine as time goes on, we would begin seeing other, uh, values also ascribed, uh, to heritage preservation. So what is protected under historic preservation law? And could you tell us a little bit about the designation process? Sure. So I'll take that one. Um, so the designation process refers to the process by which resources are formally considered to be protected. So mostly what we mean by this in the United States is that they are put on registers of historic places. And so we referred uh, earlier to the National Register, uh, to the National Historic Landmarks. Both of these are lists of, of places that are important uh, that in the federal context. We're all, we also have state and local registers that also have lists of historic properties where they have been established. So not all localities, for example, have a register of historic places, but, but some do. Uh, so the criteria, though, for a resource to become designated uh, varies depending on the whether it's at the national, state, or local level. But in general, there has to be... Um, a tangible resource, a building, a structure, an object, a district, or site for the National Register is one example. So there has to be some kind of tangible resource. It has to have some prehistoric or historic context. So it has to have some historical uh, context. The last two criteria are that it has to be significant and that it has to have integrity. These two are really the key criteria and the key bones of contention when there are disputes about whether a resource should be designated. And so with regard to the 
type of, with regard to significance, usually for a resource to be considered significant, it has to be associated with an important event or an important person, let's say George Washington. Uh, it has to have architectural merit or it has to have information that's important to history or prehistory. So under any one of these various criteria, an object can be considered to be significant. And there are others too, again, depending on, on the local or state uh, rules. The last uh, criteria, the, the criteria about integrity. Integrity means the resource has to be able to communicate its significance. In other words, it has to be intact enough. It has to be uh, unmodified enough to be able to still communicate the, the features that make it significant, including its historical context. So integrity, significance, uh, has to be some sort of tangible object. It has to have some historical context. All of these are criteria for listing under any of the types of regimes that I've mentioned. Now, as far as the process of listing, that that's typically a formal process that uh, sometimes has a referral in the case of the federal uh, in the case of the National Register, there's uh, a referral from state uh, entities that review whether the proposed resource actually meets the criteria that are required for the National Register. And at the local and state uh, nomination processes as well, you see levels of review by experts or by appointed bodies. So the process itself is, um, is uh, a formal process. Uh, that requires formal applications, documentation of the site, photographs, narratives about its historical importance, and then evaluation by, by key decision makers. So that's the process. What are the four primary methods to advance the goals of the preservation movement? Uh, let me handle this one. Um, we, yeah, we outlined four, four different methods, and these are mainly the, the legal frameworks uh, that support uh, the goals of the preservation movement. The first and most important uh, is regulation. At the federal, state, and local level, um, all of these authorities can impose rules on public and private preservation activity, and they typically do. Um, the federal regulations are typically, they come out of the National Historic Preservation Act, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but the, the state and local levels, I want to stress, are really where the heart of a lot of preservation activity takes place. And, and you'll have states that will add regulations uh, to their uh, to their state historic preservation acts on what can or cannot be done in the state, and the localities will have sometimes historic preservation ordinances where they will outline what may or may not be done uh, to certain topics. For instance, in Georgia, there is no risk, no restriction on uh, paint color uh, necessarily for historic buildings, but there is a restriction if you're going to replace the door. And what would that do to the overall landscape of the area? Uh, there are some regulations that are followed, and those are vast and varied. As Sarah mentioned earlier, there are thousands of localities across the United States uh, that have enacted historic preservation ordinances. But this sort of common process of legal regulation is typically uh, the most important category. Uh, another one that is also important is incentives, and by this way, you in, you can incentivize people in different ways. The most common one is tax credits, and we'll talk more about that later on. There's also direct subsidies, procedural relief as well, uh, but the tax credits have really done a lot to spur the private sector, particularly developers, 
into realizing that they can rehabilitate historic structures that have fallen out of use. Uh, a good example is here in Atlanta. There's something called the Pont City Market, which used to be the old Sears Roebuck Co. Uh, distribution warehouse facility. It is at one time was the largest brick building in the whole southeastern United States. It's absolutely massive. And it had been used in City Hall for a while and then had fallen out of use. Um, and through the tax credit uh, provisions, uh, it enticed a developer to come in and say, you know, we can actually have a mixed use development here in this same building. We don't need to tear the building down. We can actually rehabilitate it and it can make it commercially viable. Uh, and these incentives often provide a very good way for the private sector to become involved in the preservation movement. Uh, a third method is the authorization of restrictions. And by restrictions, what Sarah and I mean are uh, restrictions on how land or buildings may be used. Sometimes people in the past have called them easements. Uh, we term them restrictions for, for various reasons we outline in the book. But here we're thinking about conservation and preservation restrictions uh, on how certain areas look. Private landowners can modify or can choose what values should be kept in perpetuity on certain land and restrict uh, non-conforming uses of that land uh, in the future. And that is another powerful tool um, for preservation. The last one is simply information. Uh, as Sarah alluded to, there's these things called registers, typically, um, where people, you know, the first part of trying to figure out how to, you know, provide good historic preservation policies to know what you have. And creating the, the national registers and state registers, and some localities do have local, local registers, people begin to understand what are the historic resources in their areas and how can they then best protect them and how can they build them into an overall development plan uh, for their different localities. So really, those, those are the four primary methods uh, that we talk about in the book is regulation, incentives, authorization of restrictions, uh, and information. Now, would you tell us some of the things the National Historic Preservation Act has established? Sure. Um, just by way of quick background, the National Historic Preservation Act was was enacted in 1966. Um, and the main, I mean, it did a lot of things. One, perhaps it's one of the most important things that it did was, it was something called Section 106, which is really way was Section 106 of the Act. And what that does is it establishes a process for federal agencies to consider their actions on historic sites before they begin these actions. And maybe I can just flesh that out a little bit. Um, the federal federal agencies, federal government, military, they own a lot of different historic structures. And, and you know, they could either decide to the structure's old and needs to be demolished, or they could say we need to take part of this old battlefield and turn it into something different. What section, what the National Historic Preservation Act requires federal agencies to do is to actually consider the, the actions on these historic resources before doing them. And hopefully through that consideration process, through that stop, look and listen procedure, as Sarah mentioned, um, they can bring the relevant stakeholders to the table and talk about, is this development is it truly going to be wasteful? How is it going to impact the historic resource? And do we really want to do this? Or is there a better alternative? Uh, and that is one of the primary mechanisms that the National Historic Preservation Act has established. Another one that I want to talk about briefly is it, 
it gave incentives for every state to create something else called a state historic preservation officer. And this person is the lead person in the state on trying to figure out what historic resources are in each state and how best to protect them. And these state historic preservation officers have conferences and meetings. They work together to try to figure out what is the best way to preserve historic preservation or to preserve historic resources in different states. Uh, and sort of having a federal framework and then pushing it down to the state level was was quite significant. Um, and not to be remiss, but they, the National Historic Preservation Act also works with tribes, with Native American tribes, and they have a counterpart to the State Historic Preservation Officer, and that is the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, that the tribe is able to sort of determine what is historic on their areas and their lands and according to their values, and that is something else that the National Historic Preservation Act contemplated. Uh, finally, a fourth one that was already briefly mentioned was a national register, was actually listing what types of sites and buildings and sites, uh, sites, buildings and areas are considered historically important to the entire nation. And this has prompted many states and localities to create their own registers, again, to update them and to really figure out what is important about the areas we live in. Um, and I would say I'll, I'll just end it there. The, the act is very broad and very inclusive, but the consultation process, the Section 106 process are incre incredibly important. And then it established a framework for state and local participation in heritage preservation. Just to pick up on Ryan's last point, Section 106 has also uh, served as a model for uh, state and even local legislation that that has a similar structure. How have environmental statutes become an important tool for preservationists? Uh, that's a very good question, Siobhan. I mean, the environmental statutes, as you can imagine, the word environment is a very broad word. Um, and there's a federal statute called the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. It was enacted in 1969, and it's really the centerpiece of, a feder of federal environmental law. And it's it's basically it's designed to try to help protect um, the environment, which includes natural and historic resources. And the way that NEPA or the National Environmental Policy Act does that is through, again, a process of, con of consideration and consultation and alternatives of figuring out what actions taken by federal agencies might harm the physical environment, including historic resources within that physical environment, and then figuring out what, what alternatives would be better for that federal action and then making a final decision and, and moving forward. And the way that, that environmental, the environmental statute sort of had been advancing the, the, uh, the goals of historic preservation is that often the section 106 process, which is a, which is a process of consultation with interested stakeholders and the process for underneath the National Environmental Policy Act are often used together. These types of consultations often bring in different aspects of the same thing, and that is protecting either the natural landscapes or the historical landscapes. And so often when you have a project, say a road or a project of, let's say you need to build a new federal building in a certain area, uh, you will have to undergo a Section 106 review, which is underneath the National Historic Preservation Act, as well as a a review under the National Environmental Policy Act. 
And those acts will ask you to, to sort of outline and consider what are the historic resources in the area, what are the natural resources in the area, and is this the best course of action. And these processes take, you know, depending on the size of the project, they can take, you know, anywhere from a month to, to several years. Um, but it's, it's become an extremely important tool in, in stopping people before projects begin to see, like, is this the best way forward? And it's it's important to point out that the Section 106 process and the national process under the, the National Environmental Policy Act, they don't exactly say have the same terminology. Their focuses are not exactly the same, but the process is largely the same. And the process is one in which people need to know what they, know what is there before the action is being taken and then figure out what would the action being taken, let's say, putting up a new building on some public land, what would that action do to the environment and what would it do to the historic resources? And in some ways it's brought environmentalists and sort of preservationists together in, in, in some interesting ways over the years. How does Section 4F provide the most substantive protection for historic resources threatened by federal action? So this is just a good segue from what Ryan was just talking about uh, first with the National Historic Preservation Act and then uh, NEPA and uh, the other environmental protection statutes, because those statutes are really procedural statutes, as he emphasized. And Section 4F of the uh, Department of Transportation Act is what many people call the most substantive protection, uh, at least at the federal level, for historic properties. And the way that Section 4F works is that it works primarily for federal transportation projects, as the, the context uh, suggests. And what it says is that the Secretary of the Department of Transportation can approve such a project that affects historic resources. The, what, what the statute says is requires the use of certain historic resources um, only if there is no prudent and feasible alternative to using the land and if the program or project includes all possible planning to minimize harm to the historic site. And so why did this law come about? Well, it passed in the mid-60s. Uh, historic neighborhoods, uh, including New Orleans French Quarter, that uh, famously uh, were being threatened by federal transportation projects. Because especially in the 60s, um, the easiest neighborhoods to bulldoze and the most uh, efficient paths when it came to highway uh, construction were through uh, historic neighborhoods, which at that point in the 60s, in, in the middle of cities in particular, uh, were, were areas which were not highly valued from a real estate perspective, um, and through parks. So Section 4F, I should say, also protects parks uh, and wildlife and, and recreational uh, areas. So um, there, Section 4F was passed to help uh, put a finger on the scales for the kinds of resources that would be vulnerable to federal highway projects. And so these days, Section 4F is a really uh, strong protection, but it's only for those projects that have federal a federal element, and it's only for transportation projects. So uh, the Section 4F is highly litigated, as you can imagine, um, because of the strong protection that it provides. And some of the key issues that are involved in Section 4F cases, which we talk about in the book, 
include uh, whether a program is, in fact, a federal program or project what it means to use the resource. So I mentioned the word, the word use. Section 4F only protects, uh, against uses of protected resources. And so the federal register, the federal regulations say, define uses in, uh, certain ways that, that have left, uh, courts, uh, I guess I would say left some things open to legal interpretation. Um, and then the, the other big questions relate to whether the Secretary of the Interior has actually done planning for prudent and reasonable alternatives. So uh, have they actually looked at everything? Have they evaluated prudence uh, properly? Uh, have they evaluated feasibility uh, properly? Um, these are questions that the courts have, have tried to figure out when it comes to Section 4F. And I should say too that it's it's been very effective in in protecting historic resources, uh, and also it, it has served uh, as an important uh, legal tool, often in connection with Section 106 reviews under the National Historic Preservation Act. So oftentimes agencies will engage in Section 4F and Section 106 reviews simultaneously, and that uh, that helps streamline. Uh, federal review processes, but where Section 4F applies, it, of course, strengthens them. So, uh, and you see also state models that we've covered in the book that, that emulate 4F. How can zoning ordinances affect historic properties? So in the, in the zoning context, that's another kind of, of local regulation uh, that, that localities can use to influence what happens in, uh, in, historic, in historic neighborhoods. So we've talked earlier about local regulation that is really specific to historic districts. So historic regulations might require a historic review board, um, and they might review whether uh, a local developer's plan is compatible with the historic fabric or is appropriate for the historic structure that's proposed to be modified. Zoning is a broader regime for land use regulation, and zoning really deals with things like uses and forms of new structures. So where you have a zoning ordinance, um, you might, a locality might use it to influence historic preservation by applying zoning rules, let's say on height, uh, to specific historic neighborhoods. So you might say, for example, in this particular neighborhood where we know there's a lot of, uh, Victorian homes, we might say, no buildings in this neighborhood can be over three stories. They all have to be set back from the street, and they all have to have porches. So even when somebody's building a new uh, a new building, if you have some basic parameters, zoning might help to ensure that there's some minimal amounts of compatibility with historic fabric. Now, that becomes more intense when you have a form-based code, a form-based zoning code in a locality, that's a, an innovative, uh, fairly recent uh, zoning technique that has been used to address uh, massing, fenestration, physical elements like porches and roofs, and uh, similar measures. And so form-based coding is a, is a tool within zoning that might help to address historic districts. There are others, too, like overlay districts, uh, conservation districts that are they're overlaid through the zoning code. Uh, that happens in, in, uh, 
Nashville and, and Dallas and some other places, San Antonio. Um, and, and those allow for not the same level of review as a, a full-fledged historic regulation with a historic commission, but it, it has some medium layer of review that, that might still work to, to help protect uh, historic neighborhoods. So zoning can play a role. It really can in protecting historic properties. Could you discuss the constitutional constraints on historic preservation law? So I'll pick up on this one too, and Ryan, jump jump in if you as you see fit. But there's a there's a lot of um, constitutional constraints, and primarily, I should say, on local government action. So where local governments act to uh, to impose regulations on people's ability to do what they like with their land, there's always uh, constitutional challenges that have to be kept in mind. So. Uh, the most basic challenge that 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 were was originally uh, leveled against historic preservation regulations was the the police power. Are these regulations within the police power of local governments? And that's a, a I would say a settled question. There's no court today that would really dispute that preservation regulations are are outside of the police power of localities. There are due process concerns. So. Did they follow the, the the right procedure in either enacting a statute or in applying it to a particular uh, application? Uh, so the due process concerns uh, can happen at local, state, and federal levels. Um, and and another due process concern is the substantive due process. So constitutionally, did the decision that was made on a particular application for a historic district did it satisfy the constitutional requirement that um, a decision is not arbitrary and capricious or irrational uh, or otherwise offends uh, you know, sensibilities in that area. So police power, due process, these are some of the basics. Um, in the context of, of land use regulation, there are always takings mm-hmm. challenges to land use regulations. So physical takings challenges, regulatory takings, uh, exactions, these are concepts that courts have grappled with. And the Supreme Court has given us some tests on these, mostly balancing tests that, that, that courts have to weigh different factors in determining whether a taking of private property for public use without just compensation has occurred. And that's the, that's the Fifth Amendment and incorporated into the states with the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, another area that we, we cover in the book in Chapters 10, uh, 9 and 10 are our First Amendment challenges to preservation regulations. And one First Amendment challenge is religious liberty. So if a historic preservation law impacts a religious institution, we have a lot of concerns that have been passed down through case law in the First Amendment. And also there's a federal statute on point, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, um, that have dealt with this issue. And so whether it's a free exercise violation or an establishment clause violation, uh, religious institutions have been have been active in, in this arena of, of trying to challenge historic preservation regulations that they feel might infringe on religious liberty. And then the Chapter 10 uh, topic that I mentioned on free speech. You can imagine a situation where Let's say in, uh, well, this is a real case in the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Boston where the local, uh, historic regulation 
said that you can't put news racks out in the historic district because they cluttered the sidewalk and, and they led to, uh, to, to visual impairment of the historic district according to the local government. And newspaper publishers challenged this rule, this rule because they said that it violated their free speech rights. Now, the First Circuit said it, it doesn't violate your free speech because you have reasonable alternative avenues of communication. There are other places that you can distribute your newspapers, but you can see how free speech might be implicated in a historic preservation context. And so, again, these are some of the, the very big picture, the issues that uh, constitutional, uh, constitutional issues that may come up in preservation. And, and I would just add that it's it's really interesting as you, as you look at everything that Sarah has has said about these constitutional issues that you know of course it's it's typically some sort of regulation or ordinance right that is being contested right and that is sort of the the prime the primary method for for moving the uh, historic preservation aims forward but it's also the primary method that is that is contested under the Constitution and it's always sort of how how you know. Does the government or has the government sort of overstepped their bounds and where are those bounds with related, related to historic resources? And it's a fascinating question, especially, especially today with the recent Supreme Court decisions. How does historic preservation law interact with Indian tribes? And in what ways does it help preserve Native heritage? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle this one. Uh, there's, there's really, I mean, two main ways. Uh, that historic preservation law interacts with with Native American tribes, and when we say Native American in the book, it's important to to recognize that this is broader than just uh, what is known as as Indians. There's also Native Amer Native Hawaiian groups, um, and sort and also Native groups up in Alaska that that are sort of included within this definition. Uh, so, but really, there's there's two ways, and and the first is a federal statute called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Uh, its acronym is NAGPRA, uh, and the second way is the National Historic Preservation Act itself. And I'll take those both in turn. Um, so, the Native American Graves and Protect Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was passed because uh, in the 90s it was sort of seen that, as we mentioned about the origins of historic preservation. A lot of it started out with collecting, and a lot of these early collections consisted of Native American grave objects, funerary objects, Native American bones, skeletons, and over time, uh, it was thought, and I think correctly thought, that, you know what, the, this is just not appropriate to have these, uh, essentially people on, on exhibit in the museums, and so the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act what it did was it established a process uh, and a requirement that federal museums go through their collections and figure out what bones do they have that belong to Native Americans, what funerary objects and sacred objects, and to try to return those objects uh, to the tribes. Now, that is, it can be a difficult process, as you might imagine. Some of the tribes don't exist anymore. Um, others, it's, it's difficult to tell where the bones have come from, that they don't belong to any specific tribe. But the idea behind the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act is that on the one hand, everything that has been collected should go through and that, that Native Americans, according to their custom, that these people should be reburied according to, to tribal, uh, to tribal ideals. Uh, in addition, it also protects uh, as you might imagine, there's lots of federal public land out there that is being used for different things. And sometimes uh, people find either 
inadvertently or they know something is there, that there are some Native American burial grounds there, and it establishes procedures for protecting uh, those those burials and the funerary objects and the the relics uh, related to the tribes. Um, I'll switch now over briefly to the National Historic Preservation Act itself and what it does. It, it, it so as I mentioned before, there's something there's an office created that each tribe can have its own tribal historic preservation officer, and they are the counterparts to the state historic preservation officers, and they're the ones that help set sort of policy and procedures for how do they preserve Native American um, historic sites and historic resources. Um, in Hawaii, there's actually, for the Native Hawaiian groups, there's a state agency that is created to help uh, ensure their, the protection of their historic resources. But the National Historic Preservation Act also recognizes that there are differences, perhaps, between the way that perhaps a Western sort of Anglo-American a conception of historic resources and Native American properties and sites of significance. And so in many ways, it allows more leeway for the protection of Native American sites, especially religious sites, uh, than it does for just sort of Anglo-American sites. And perhaps the most important piece of how the National Historic Preservation Act interacts with with the Native American tribes is that it requires them to be a part of this consultation process that we have talked about so much when an action is going to affect something on tribal lands or when it will affect Native American graves or funerary uh, objects. They need to have a seat at the table, and in some cases they must have a seat at the table for consultation to, to continue. And so the idea is that these laws should try to protect their heritage and also particularly through the tribal historic preservation officers and their work, that the values and ideals and culture of the tribe uh, should also be protected. Why are tax credits the single most effective public program supporting private development of historic buildings? Well, tax credits are um, a great way to stimulate development. What they do at the state and uh, federal levels where they're uh, enacted, or the the states that they're enacted, and of course the federal level, is that they catalyze so far billions of dollars in development of historic properties. And this has really benefited, uh, in a lot of cases, our cities, our urban fabric. Of course, there are, there are projects outside of cities as well, but, but the historic tax credits that are available have really been um, important in ensuring that private investment occurs in, in the places that, that need it most. So there's a lot of restrictions on what kinds of projects uh, are eligible for tax credits. What most programs want, including the federal program, is that it's a building that will be placed back on the tax rolls. It's a private private building, a commercial structure, or a, a multifamily residential structure that is substantially rehabilitated, and that's usually the term that is used. Uh, during a certain period and then placed in service uh, to one of the uses that are prioritized by the tax credit programs. The projects that are the types of, uh, of uh, buildings that are eligible for the federal program, and I say buildings because it is only only buildings that are that are eligible, not the other kinds of resources that I mentioned um, a little bit earlier in the conversation, but the kinds of buildings that are eligible are those that are that are listed on the National Register 
or contributing to a registered historic district. And so you see how that, that question of what's formally on the register comes into play here and it has real dollars and cents implications. To conclude, I'd love to know what you are both working on now. Well, I guess I'll go ahead and start. Um, several things I'm working on. Uh, I guess the, the first is I'm working on a paper, um, which is, which will be the first, uh, statewide, statewide study of what is called certified local governments. And by certified local governments, I mean governments that have, uh, been certified and have a, his, have a historic preservation ordinance in force and a historic review commission, uh, to review the ordinance. And these certified local governments, are, exist all over the United States and they're available for funding and training expertise, et cetera. But thus far, there's been no sort of broad-based analysis or study of how certified lo- local governments have, have functioned. And the state of Georgia, which I'm in, uh, I think has the third or fourth most certified local governments of any state in the United States at, at 83. And what we've done is we've gone through all of the ordinances, well, currently going through all of these ordinances and review commissions to see how the certified local government sort of process is actually functioning because they're supposed to report back every number of years to the state historic preservation officer that things are going well or not so well or what, what we need to change. And, and, and this will be the first sort of broad based comparative study of certified local governments in a particular state. So that will be, it's, it's been a lot of work, but I think we're going to find some interesting things and hopefully we can encourage other states to also take a look at what is happening on the local level because that's really where preservation happens is on the local level. That's really cool, Ryan. I didn't, I didn't realize that you were doing, doing that. That's, that's awesome. Um, my work right now is more, is, is less on, on preservation specifically and more on, on zoning issues. So, um, I'm working right now on an update to a zoning treatise that I uh, co-author with uh, Dwight Miriam, who's a, a land use guru. Um, and I'm also working on uh, the beginning project of the fourth restatement of property, uh, the provisions that deal with zoning and uh, conservation and preservation restrictions and other covenants. So, um, so those are more in the, traditional land use arena, but, but still have some historic preservation, uh, regulation components, um, when, when those issues are touched upon. And a couple of other projects. I just did one on, on renewable energy and, and, um, the Acopolis, which is, uh, a city that regenerates itself, which is, I guess, renewable energy is the other area outside of land use that I'm, that I'm interested in. So, um, but I'd love to get your report, uh, Ryan, your, oh, your- yeah. As you uh, as you draft it, so I'll use this interview to to, to absolutely. Now I'd be happy to provide it, and I know Dwight quite well because he was with us over in Warsaw recently, and and he's a fantastic guy, and I look forward to that uh, to the update to the book. Great, all right. Well, those sound like fantastic projects. I want to thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. Appreciate it.